The Achilles heel is that they can do unpopular things many times. They can be found to have violated the Constitution over and over again, but they can pick up the pieces and move, move forward because they'll never lose no matter what they do. Until we get accountability back at the state house level, they'll continue to be at laboratories as long as they know they'll never lose by, by being those things. That's why the system never stops. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. Over the last few months, there have been two themes that have been in a lot of the conversations we've had in heavy rotation. The ongoing attack at the heart of the U.S. democracy and the reality of our federalist system of government. We've talked about both on our weekly roundups with David Becker uh, about new voting laws and when we spoke with Lucy Caldwell about ALEC and the State Policy Network. Today, we're going to spend some time on the convergence of these two themes and take a closer look, including what goes on behind the scenes. We'll look at the power of state legislatures and how they're shaping the battle for the future of democracy. My guest today is David Pepper. David served as chairman of the Ohio Democratic Party from 2015 to 2021. He's also a former local elected official in Cincinnati and Hamilton County, Ohio. He graduated from Yale Law School and has taught election and voting rights law at the University of Cincinnati. And most recently, he's the author of a wonderful new book called Laboratories of Autocracy, a wake-up call from behind the lines. David, welcome to Politicology. Thank you. Great to be with you guys. While this discussion we're about to have is really about what's going on over the country, you use Ohio as both a touchstone and a case study throughout the book. And before we dive in, I thought I had a little bit of extra context so that listeners understand the significance of the state beyond its 17 electoral college votes. From my background, I can tell you that an outsized amount of top shelf talent in the Republican campaign consulting world, so strategists, staff, mail vendors, media vendors, pollsters, you know, people who've gone on to situate themselves in key power positions within campaign politics, like major party committees and presidential campaigns, have come out of Ohio. Ohio is, has, a, has a very big uh, place in Republican politics. There are multiple reasons for that, and heavy investment in the state party is one of them, but I think our listeners will get even more out of this conversation if they keep that little factoid in mind as we proceed. And Candidly, I don't know if the same is true within the Democratic campaign ecosystem. So feel free to add to that. And then maybe you can begin by talking about why you think what's going on in Ohio is emblematic of what's going on in the rest of the country. Sure. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And there are, there is, you know, it's amazing how many people I meet in Democratic politics who also cut their teeth, you know, in Obama campaigns or other campaigns in Ohio, um, people, whether they're from here or not, by the way, one of my themes in my book is that whenever I meet anyone around the country, if they're not from Ohio, their aunt is, or their grandmother was like, it's really, you know, they're a Reds fan because their, their uncle was and still lives in Dayton or something. So for that reason alone, there's a lot of town coming of Ohio, but, um, but yeah, it's amazing how many people cut their teeth in Ohio campaigns in eight or 12. I meet them all the time. <laughs> uh, but, but more broadly, I mean, I think it's easy to forget because of what they did in Ohio and, frankly, Democratic failures in Ohio, that this was a state that would go back and forth, clearly. I would say still leaned a little red throughout generations. But when the Obama coalition was in its full sort of robust state here, we didn't just have an Obama presidency determined in the Ohio election in 08. We had a majority of the Ohio State House. Despite a gerrymandering of Ohio in, in 01, 
Democrats won the state house in 08 on the backs of the very strong Obama coalition. We had 10 out of the 18 congressional districts. We had a Democratic governor. And we were a state that for generations has been very proud of sort of the broader success level um, as um, you know, measured in all sorts of ways. And I go through this in the first part of the book. And only 10 years later, look at us, you know, a, a state where we don't only have Trump winning, but we have um, you know, a supermajority Republican state house. 12 out of 16 members of Congress for the last decade guaranteed a state house majority locked into place no matter how bad they are, no matter how extreme, no matter how terrible our outcomes. And this is a point of part of the first chapter of the book. And our outcomes have been horrible. Uh, a state that was, you know, that it's the home of the Cleveland Clinic and Cincinnati Children's Hospital, one of the greatest in the world, is in the low 40s when it comes to so many public health measurements out of 50. Uh, a, a public school system that's fallen, fallen from fifth in the country less, less than 20 years ago is now in the mid-20s. We have the highest level of student debt in the country. We're losing population as fast as any state in the country. The point of all of this is to say, if it can happen in a state like Ohio that was sort of just going along just fine as a moderate, slightly right-leaning swing state, the destruction of a coalition that elected Obama and its Democrats up and down the uh, ballot, and the and I go through the book how undemocratic state houses quickly and inevitably lead to horrific public outcomes, and we can walk through that. If it can happen here, look out, world, because it it really uh, we, we are a bellwether in many ways, and in this way, I'm afraid we may be again as well. Where once there's an undemocratic hold on the state house, which is a far more powerful entity than people realize, the consequences that flow from that are terrible for a state. And in that way, I'm afraid we are a canary in the coal mine. Let's talk about the people in those state houses. So our listeners will be familiar with you know the power that state legislators have uh, because we've covered it extensively on the show. But earlier in the book, you write about a Johns Hopkins poll that found that nearly uh, 20% of respondents, around 20% of respondents, could name their own state representative. And that probably won't be surprising to politicology listeners, as many of them have now made it a priority to know who their state and local reps are. Um, and I also want to be careful about the word you use, anonymous, uh, as in your book, because I think obscure uh, might be a little bit more accurate. But semantics aside, can you talk about how flying under the radar shapes the way these state legislatures operate? Sure. You know, I, I call them in the book um, the Achilles heel of American governance because they, as, as I'm glad you've talked about, but too few know, they have enormous power over everything we care about in life, over almost every political issue of, of the, that's debated and over democracy itself. But almost nobody can name their state rep. Almost no one has any idea what these people are doing in these state capitals, really largely outside those state capitals uh, for a whole lot of reasons. And so the, the Achilles heel is that that's a toxic combination. You know, democratic governance in theory is sort of relying on consent of the governed. Well, if people don't know what they're doing uh, and they have a lot of power to affect them, that's a real problem. And then, of course, you throw in the third fact, which is um, that insiders in these state houses, and it's exploded in the last 20 years as people have figured this out, insiders deep pocketed and social groups like the NRA and others they're all over these state houses because they know exactly what they can do for them. So you have this really bad combination, and it and it's only getting worse as you see local media collapse, and you see gerrymandering, 
make it so that largely we've had now a generation of state houses that have been basically devoid of democracy. That means we have elected officials who've basically never been democracy, majorities of them. And we have voters who have not really ever, they don't think about state houses like they think about presidencies or mayors. They're basically under the radar because for almost every one of the voters out there in states like Ohio, they've never really had a choice in these races. It's not something that's on their political radar. So it's all combining to create, uh, maybe anonymous isn't the best word, but it's truly under the radar for almost all of America. And that's creating really negative consequences like the ones I go through. So one of the things I found interesting was that you wrote about the unintended negative consequences of having term limits. Um, and Look, I mean, I, I, I am. I don't have a. I don't have really strong views on term limits at all because there's they're very compelling arguments on both sides of that. Um, and you know, depending on the day, I'm persuaded by one or the other. Can you talk about how that impacts the ecosystem in state capitals? Yeah, and you know, I try and I, you know, my goal is to try and bring in as many people to the conversation as possible. So I don't go in my book and take a hard yeah. view on term limits either. I mean, I think it's you know, it's the law of Ohio. It's a contested issue. Uh, some people, frankly, if they're done after eight years, I'm perfectly happy with that. But what it's done is it's created you know, a, a mismatch. The lobbyists and special interests and Koch brothers and the ALEC, who you've talked about, they're not term limited, uh, nor are a lot of the people in the bureaucracy of state governments. So if you only have eight years as the elected official of the people of your district, and that gives you very little time to learn the place, understand the place, know what you're doing. And then you become a committee chair and you really have to know what you're doing. It puts you in this very inferior position to people who are in the permanent business of impacting state government to their ends. And, you know, one of, one of the best ways to describe this is, is um, so ALEC is this national group that flies legislators all around the country to give them private, basically privatized legislation mm -hmm. that they go back to their home state and pass. Do you know what they call the money they give to pay for these legislators to fly to their conferences? Oh, I can't wait. Scholarships. Think about that. They they literally have named the money a like these people are students that fly to you know L.A. or or Denver to learn from the private groups how to write good laws. I mean, that is literally the position. And, and I think if someone's been around for 25 years, I'm not, I'm not your student. Thank right. you. I mean, right. it, but if you're there for three years, you're scrambling to be relevant in your, in your first four or five years, you don't know the state government that well because you came from local government or something, or maybe you, you were a small business person. That's exactly the position they've kind of created for themselves. And, and it's accentuated by now the infrastructure that's set up to influence these people. They are literally students who are given scholarships to fly around the country and being, being spoon-fed legislation that they then get to go back to their state capitals and pass. And that mismatch, I do think, comes a lot from term limits. I mean, they're greeted when they first are elected by the whole, you know, the whole parade of, of special interests in these state capitals. Here, let us show you how to do this. We're the experts on that. And by the way, a lot of these places are chock full of people who used to be in these offices. So it's even more like a sort of superior, inferior thing. And then they're treat, you know, they're treated to a great life that they probably don't see usually back home. So there really is a mismatch that that helps create this system where they basically do, you know, what they're generally asked to do by all those who are right in their face. And the people back home in their districts honestly still don't know what they're doing. And one of the other things I go through is, you know, 
I give I give a case study of a of a kind of a local boy doing well, a guy named Cliff Rosenberger. He became the speaker. He's from a small town that's been through a lot. Within a year or two, he's flying around the world. He's literally being greeted by a caravan of Escalades in LA for his trip there. He's in London. He's in Paris with payday lenders. I mean, the treatment these people get. And it's, so it's eight years of amazing that that some, I think, just are going to get tempted to take full advantage of largely by doing things that will be directly counter to the people back home. And that's sort of what's happening. And that comes from the short-termism that seems to be encouraged by, by uh, term limits. Uh, yeah, I think the term limits, yeah, I, I try and think back to the storied figures of, of Ohio politics on either side 20, 30 years ago, where that, and again, I don't, again, this is, it's not taking aside on term limits, but it's saying this for what it is. That 30-year chair of the, the Transportation Committee of Ohio or that 20-year speaker, if someone said to them, listen, let us teach, let us tell you about <laughs> Transportation Ohio, or let us give you a scholarship to learn, they'd say, who do you think you are? Like, I've done this, I've done this for years. I'm not, I'm not inferior to you in any way, and I'm not looking for my next job. I'm I'm so and so, and I'm doing this for Ohio. I do think the short term, the short term, and, and some of these people may run for Congress, they may run for state senate, and some have figured out how to do that. But for the most part, this is their eight years. And again, I've been in office. It takes a while to learn these places. It takes a while to learn a city hall. And so by four or five years in, you're finally getting the hang of it. You're, then you're the chair of a committee for maybe one term and then you're done. So, yeah, it's a, I mean, people are becoming speakers in their fifth year because you have two terms left. It's all accelerated and it's a bunch of people with, with not a lot of experience up against a world that has been at it now for a generation of how to get the most out of these state houses. So it really becomes a mismatch. This makes a lot of sense, and and I, I agree. Without taking a, a position on term limits one way or the other, I think it's important for people, particularly of younger generations, to whom the idea of term limits is so attractive and kind of you know they talk about it like it's a no brainer. There are serious um, unintended consequences, and and I think that's a really good point. Well, let me just say, when I was on city council in Cincinnati, I could you could feel if you were pushing aggressively against some part of the city bureaucracy, you could feel the sense, well, he'll be gone in four years. We'll just wait them out. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's, um, you know, the, the, you, you are limiting, you are limiting the, the side that is supposed to represent the people. Yeah. And you're not limiting the people, the, the folks that represent the special interests who are much closer to these state houses than the people are. So I, I do think, yeah, that's a, it, it is an issue. Good point. Okay, uh, gerrymandering. So we have spent a lot of time on this show talking about redistricting and gerrymandering. Um, and I should note, full disclosure, in case you don't know this about me, but in 2011, I drew all the lines in Nevada um, uh, and and sort of ran the Republican operation there. This was long before I stopped calling myself a Republican and left the party. Uh, so I have some deep experience in in this domain, and I wonder how you saw it play out in Ohio uh, back in 2011. I mean, Ohio was a, a nightmare in 11, um, and, and I wrote in the book. I was one of the people running to be on the board that would draw districts mm. in 2010. I ran for state auditor, um, and it was even clear then that the other side understood why that mattered a lot more than my side. I mean, I, I put in the book how all of a sudden, like 
random coal mine employees from Utah and Illinois were giving to my opponent. <laughs> I mean, at 20, this was before low dollar online giving. They were sending checks right. for 20 and 30 bucks uh, from Utah, from Price, Utah. Um, the, uh, so they got it in the campaign. Carl Rove clearly was fixated on these states he needed to win. But the process, and it, we're going through it again right now. I mean, it's, it's just as bad right now, even though the Supreme Court of Ohio keeps saying they need to do better. They were in a bunker in a hotel room, uh, all of it secret, all following the training they were given uh, to keep it secret. And they just rigged the place like nobody's business. And, and I go, you know, so the process was horrific behind closed doors. I mean, I'm not calling the bunker. They called it the bunker themselves. Oh, that yeah. was their I, that, term. That sounds like a for, thing that, yeah. Yeah, for where they were hiding. They were literally getting, you know, they were supposed to be a public process. But but the good news is there was a lawsuit that, although it didn't stop the gerrymander, uncovered all this. They were literally shutting out the public from the process. But we even have an email at the last second. The Timken Corporation wanted to be in one person's district and not the other. So when it was all done, or almost all done, an email from John Boehner's uh, staff member goes to the state house, literally saying, hey, a friend of us would love to be in Renacy's district. Can you take care of that? And 10 minutes later, without going to the state house that's supposed to be drawing this, oh, sure, we got it done. And there's a little hook now in that district that carves out a tiny little place with no one living in it, but Timken headquarters. It was at the last mi- minute, and it it literally was. It showed you that that in the end, you know, Boehner was partly in control of all this. But yeah, the whole so the process was egregious, which led to maps that were the most egregious in the history of Ohio, one of the worst in the country. Where and, and I go through this in the book. Ohio was essentially blue in both eight and twelve by almost the same amount. Obama won by almost the same amount. And the same blue Ohio went from a 10-8 Democrat to Republican majority to a 12-4 Republican Democrat majority. Same Obama voters, same Obama coalition, same results statewide went from 10-8 one way to 12-4 the other way. And a majority Democratic state house became a supermajority Republican. And those numbers stuck for the rest of the decade. But here's the part of gerrymandering that I think is more extreme and has led to more warped consequences than I think even Karl Rove could have imagined. And that is that not only do the numbers flip, you know, 12-4 or a supermajority, but the people who are being lifted in these districts, you know, the Republicans basically gave themselves 62 seats out of 99 in the Ohio State House. And I go through it in the book. 17 of those 62 averaged a 50% margin of victory or better for a decade. 75-25 results are better. The next 21 districts are a 30% margin of victory or better. The next uh, uh, 12 or something like 20%. So 50 people out of 99 are guaranteed an outcome that's 20% or better. And the next 12 are 10% or better, meaning 62. So we're not talking about just majority control. We're talking about a supermajority that has not gone through real elections. They literally have not experienced in their own rise to power democracy. And that turns out to, to, and I go through this in the book, how specifically, almost every incentive that we assume comes, a good incentive from the democratic process, you know, serving public outcomes, working with other people to get things done, not being an extremist, not being corrupt, almost every one of those incentives in a world without democracy, which has been the world of this, these people, is flipped on its head, where public outcomes don't matter because you're, you're in there no matter what. Keeping those private people happy really matters 
even if you're doing unpopular things to keep them happy, because unpopular things don't matter. <laughs> Be extreme, and if you avoid a primary. Work with the other side, you'll probably lose that primary. On and on and on. You know, be corrupt. You normally get away with it. The point is that what's happened because of that 11 gerrymander is essentially in state in many states a world absent of democracy, absent of real elections. And when you have term limits like the people we have now, it's an entire generation of people who've essentially been in these offices devoid of real elections and democracy. And it's really made things a mess. And it's what, when people are shocked by the behavior of these state houses, to me, that almost explains it better than anything else. It's what you would expect people who've never been democracy to do. They're afraid of democracy. They know a real election threatens their power. And worse than all that, the behavior that they've exhibited to do well in their world without democracy would cost them power in a real democracy. So guess what? They'll do anything they can to avoid that fate. So it's really kind of led to an explosion in directions that I don't even know if the people who did these districts 10 years ago appreciated how warped things would get as these incentives all got flipped on their head. I know one guy who's no longer alive who certainly would. His name is Tom Hoffler and our listeners yeah. can go can go google him. Um so I want to I want to play with this point for a minute because it sort of dovetails with what my next question was going to be because you the way you talk about them they've never experienced democracy and I would say maybe competitiveness in a general election because what's happening as a byproduct of exactly what you just described is that all of the heat all of the competition all the money, all the attention, all of that, all of what would normally take place in a general election is now going to be forced into primary elections. And it used to be a long time ago that that wasn't, uh, that that would result in precisely what you're talking about, where there are no, uh, you know, there's no real serious competition at the primary level. However, now, given the landscape that you just described, which is fully accurate, don't you think that more and more, especially as, as the two parties continue to fracture and the Republican Party continues to sort of uh, take a sort of very dangerous path, don't you think more and more attention is going to be spent and more money is going to be spent in these primary fights and, and, and all the competition that we really want happening in a general election is going to be happening with incentives that pull people further to the extremes? Absolutely. And, and you can, now, again, I think a lot of that will come from open seats. Um, but yeah, if you look at the Ohio Senate primary right now on the Republican side, I mean, it's an absolute disaster. Uh, they are, they are all like a draining millions of dollars from their personal bank accounts. Mm -hmm. And Josh Hawley would blush at what some of them are doing. Yeah. I mean, Josh Mandel, JD Vance, totally be clowning himself, um, others as well. And I think that is the foreseeable future. Now, when you get to the state house level, um, I think that it, it, this is the problem. It's either that or the incumbent, to avoid that, just goes as extreme as they can, then they avoid the primary. So if if they have a primary, it becomes that. If they don't have a primary, it's probably because they behaved, you know, as anti-vax, as big lie, as all that is possible, whatever the time at the moment demands, and that fends off that from happening. Either way, it's a massive rush to the right. That's that's again. I mean, one thing that gets lost is. All of this stuff is so out of the mainstream, but you're in a world where that doesn't matter. And that's, again, part of the points of these warped incentives. I mean, this stuff, I mean, Ohio, we've moved more red. And when one side controls a conversation, that does happen. But this is still a state that, that 
generally would support Roe v. Wade or support common sense gun reform and wants, you know, John Kasich, when he pushed for Medicaid expansion, good for him. Ohio wanted that. But the state house fought him tooth and nail. So on, on all these issues, I mean, they are really careening way to the extreme, but it's protected by these gerrymandered districts and and it serves their goal of not facing a primary. I go through the example, and, you, and it, you've been around long enough, you probably remember this person, where Jean Schmidt was a congresswoman from, from Southern Ohio, the second district. Okay. As conservative as they get, I mean, if you remember, she told John Murtha, you know, Marines don't cut and run. That's right. Remember, she, she was literally on Saturday Live. She was way out there at the time. Like our, our, she was sort of a Michelle Bachman type figure. She had one fatal flaw in the conservative side of things. She liked to get the president's signature at the State of the Union. She was one of those people who would sit in that aisle and rush to get the mm-hmm. signature. And she'd always be on TV because she was so excited. And she did it for Bush every time. But her fatal mistake is that she actually tried to get Obama's signature at the State of the Union. And what did they use to call her too moderate in the primary that beat her? That. And that's why Brad Wenstrup has been in Congress ever since. But what's the lesson from that? I mean, so they, they primaried someone who's conservative. She literally had said Obama was not born here. She was a birther. But because of one moment of actually thinking the presidential office itself is worth getting a signature for, one moment where I'd say, well, I don't agree with her on almost anything, but I get that. Like, that <laughs> yeah, is exciting. He's yeah. the president of the United States. That one moment is what they used to say she was too moderate. And now she, and she lost in the primary. And of course, her successor won't. I mean, and my the point is, if you can't even have a moment like with Chris Christie after Superstorm Standy welcoming Obama or a, a, a congresswoman wanting a signature for my president, if those moments of even surface level bipartisanship cost you a primary, of course, you're never going to agree to actually work across party lines on anything of substance or be friendly or anything else. So these people, not only do they know it. There are case studies where those brief moments of partnership can cost you your entire career. And, and that's why the behavior is either a horrible primary to the right or behavior so far to the right, you fend off your primary. Either way, it's the way you prolong your career. Totally agree. And it was worth the detour for those examples. So yeah, thank sorry you. About that. No, no, no. I, I brought it up. I thought that was important. So the issue that we were highlighting here with the way the, the districts are drawn is, is proportionality. Well, there are two. There's proportionality which is the degree to which the congressional delegation and the state legislature are roughly proportional to the way people in that state vote or the way they identify with the party. But there's also an issue of competitiveness, and that's what we were just talking about. So 538's analysis has one of the 16 districts on the 2011 Ohio map as highly competitive. One. There are four other House districts where the partisan lean is under 15 points. And in 2020, uh, Cook Political Port had three races in Ohio listed as competitive. So much of the book is uh, focused on you know, the fact that we're drifting away from small R Republican form of government, which just to clarify for everyone, by that I mean that that, that power comes from the consent of the governed, that representative power comes from the consent of the governed. How do you think about the issues of both proportionality and competitiveness? And maybe to put a finer point on the on that question, can you still have a republic with mostly large with with non-competitive elections, even if the results send a proportional number of electeds from the two major parties? I mean, I I think a key part of the book is that it really 
gets difficult. I mean, at some point, even if you have some proportionality, which we don't, if you have no one who worries, I mean, accountability is the key to this system like it is most systems. And once you have a system with no accountability, it just, as I say, said here, say the book, it warps everything else. Um, it, it just isn't going to lead to what we expect, which is the people weighing in every two years or four years on how their elected person is doing. They can't, that you cannot change the direction for your district, for the state, if in the end everything is predetermined. So, of course, you know, a fair map is going to have a number of districts that are out of reach because it represents the geographic entity and community of that area. That's fine. But these, they're drawing districts all across the state like Ohio to avoid competition for any of their candidates. And, and that, sometimes for Democrats too, but here's a perfect example of how they know exactly what they're doing. Not only was the recent map not proportional that got struck down by the House Supreme Court, they tried to claim that, well, we're going to have 57 seats and you're going to have, uh, what, 42. There were 13 actual competitive districts that they drew out of the 99. All 13 were part of the Democrats' 42. Not one of theirs was a competitive district. So they're like, their, their view of, of every election is we get to fight on your territory in every district while we don't ever worry about any of ours. Um, so what would a fair map be something that's, and you can do this. People are doing them all the time. As you would know, a fair map is actually a lot easier to draw than a rig map. It takes hard work to draw a rig map that you think a court might pass. A fair map would be, you know, in Ohio, somewhere in the low to mid fifties, Republican, somewhere in the low to mid forties, I'm sorry, mid forties or higher Democrat. And, you know, six, seven, eight toss ups on each side. And that gives you the proportionality, but it also gives you the voters are the ones in the end deciding if they get really excited or really mad. Maybe they they vote enough Democrats in to have the majority, which is what happened in 08. The default may be that Republicans are sort of in charge, which I would say that's that's generally reflecting the population. And if Democrats really screw up somehow, then maybe the Republicans get themselves in the high 50s. But they don't want to ever give that that sort of flux to the system. And the flux is the people actually weighing in. Uh, and you mentioned the word Republican. You know, one of the ironies that, that I discovered in doing the, the book, and, and, and I knew some of this, but this whole question was of deep concern to the founders. James Madison wrote at length that a huge risk to the republic, and by republic, they did not mean Republican Party. They did not mean, you know, just an elite removed from the people. They were, they were thinking about elites. They met, their big revolution was to create the people as sovereign. And when they said Republican form of government, they meant the people are sovereign and these governments should reflect the will of the people. And they were deeply concerned that state houses, for all the reasons we discussed, were more prone to corruption, were smaller, and based on their recent experience, could become the back door of undermining our entire nation's democracy. So they literally wrote in the, into the U.S. Constitution, that the United States shall guarantee a Republican form of government in all states. And by the way, that appeared, the next sentence in that, the next clause in that sentence is that the United States shall protect states from foreign invasion. They thought about this so seriously because they thought it was something that could happen in states. And as James Madison wrote, undemocratic state houses not only are a threat within their states, but they're a threat to the entire nation. So they, this is something that the founders deeply worried that state houses could be used as a backdoor 
to undermine the nation's entire democracy. And they worried the monarchy might try it. But James Madison literally wrote the words that rich men can corrupt forces. Rich men are quotes for what he said, could actually use the state houses to, to make an end run in our entire country's democracy, which is everything we're seeing now. James Madison would say, I told you this could happen. Like You're actually supposed to do something about it, you know, senators. Uh, this is a risk. And I guaranteed that you would stop this if it were to happen in state. So it's it's really something that if you look at the institutional setup of our Constitution, it's a risk that was quite obvious that they called out. My worry is several centuries later, we're so confident in our democracy, we don't see it for the risk that they saw it as. And we don't see it for in the same way we would see this if it was happening in another country. It, what is happening in our own state houses. We, we simply don't see it that way. And we should. I totally agree. If we were to look at what's happening at the state level in America as if it were another country, we'd be talking about it in a completely different way. Right. That is if we cared about what happens in other countries anymore. But right. that's a different conversation for a different time. I want to add one other point that for you to respond to on this front, since we went back a couple of hundred years to the beginning of the country, um, uh, to the issue of competitiveness and how none of these districts are, are competitive. Uh, leading to, as you say, none of them to actually face the forces of democracy. Um, Closed primaries are a consequence of political parties. True? They aren't written into any any founding documents that I'm aware of, the nature of primary elections that we should have them Mm -hmm. at all, right? Those are purely and exclusively a function of the fact that we have political parties who need to decide Mm -hmm. who they're going to put forward to the public in a general election. Right. George Washington warned us against the rise of political parties, I would argue, for precisely that reason. In his farewell address, right? Beware the rise of political parties. They will come to seek only their own power and and, uh, uh, self-preservation. Which is, mm-hmm. which is precisely what we're happening now. I see this as almost a, a, an impenetrable argument for open primaries everywhere. What do you think about that? Um, I think that if you, and I talked to a group the other day in Ohio that's looking at this. Yeah, if there was a way to sort of denuclearize our primaries, it would make a huge difference. Uh, open primaries, you know, I think there's an effort in, in Missouri being pursued right now to have a what they're calling a top four primary where people across parties run in one primary and the top four who win go to a November election. And then the, the harder part is how do you sort out the, the top four who wins? Do you do a, um, you know, what they did in New York? Um, rank choice. Uh, rank choice because that gets complicated. But, but yeah, if we had right now a four-person primary for the U.S. Senate and it had – Tim Ryan, James Timken, Josh Mandel, J.D. Vance, whoever, it would look very different mm-hmm. if you were trying to be in the top four. You'd have – I think Josh Mandel would still be Josh Mandel. Yep. I don't think J.D. Vance would be the current version of J.D. Vance. By the way, the fact that he changes versions is quite scary. <laughs> oh, my God, but it is. I don't, yeah. th- I don't think he would be – I think he would be thinking, okay, if everyone's voting in that primary and I don't have to appeal to the Trump and Mandel lane – I can be much more like myself and normal and Tim Ryan would be himself and maybe there'd be someone on the far left, but you'd have a variety and there would be a different set of incentives than simply hugging as far to the right as they are right now. So I do think there uh, there is some real good conversation that has to be had around reforming primaries 
because they are, as you're suggesting, and, and I think others are waking up to this, really bring, like making it so much worse. I think it's a, that gerrymandering is adding that too. Definitely. But, but as we're talking about, you know, a statewide race is not gerrymandered yeah. and the behavior is egregious. Now, now we're going to see them all run somewhat to the middle, although some may not be capable of that. But yeah, some kind of primary reform. And I'm, I'm certainly open to that because I do think that it's grotesque. And you, you literally have three or four people. And one of them dropped out already named Bernie Marino, who in the last four years have said bad things about Donald Trump that because of the primary process aren't just embracing Donald Trump, but are taking their cues from him. It's a primary to get his endorsement, basically. Bernie Marino, who literally said terrible things about Donald Trump only four, four years ago, who was a he's a, a car dealer guy from Cleveland. He filed his paperwork to to run a couple weeks ago. He gave a big interview about how he's just getting started. The next day he dropped out because Donald Trump told him, he said, because Donald Trump said, said I should, basically. <laughs> That's how much a guy who was not for Trump, he just quit because the guy told him to. Uh, it, clearly, he knew that if he didn't get the endorsement, he was out. I don't think in, you know, in the world of, of, a, of a broader primary, you'd see that dynamic playing out as intensely as it is. And yes, that would lead to a much healthier process. So whether it's open primaries, you know, in, in Ohio, we have an interesting primary system. Yeah. Anyone can vote. But you, it, the way we decide if what party you're registered in is which primary you vote in. It's not you register in advance and then must vote in that primary. But you are attesting to the fact that you are a member of that party. That one reason Kasich won the primary against Trump, I believe, is independents and some Democrats crossed over mm. and voted for Kasich because they thought it would stop Trump. But but those people were technically swearing that they were Republicans, and I, so it's. It's not really open in the way that you're talking about. I think, a bro but I think broader primary reform could get some of the intensity of this terrible stuff out of out of politics. I'm glad we took the time to help people see sort of the the system of incentives that is that is set up here. Because if you just say open primaries with no context, like this is the kind of deep work that we're trying to do on the show to explain this to people. So Good. thank you. Let's talk about the title of the book which is Laboratories of Autocracy. And you're, of course, alluding to the metaphor uh, Justice Louis Brandeis used, calling states laboratories of democracy. So can you explain what Justice Brandeis meant and why you decided to replace democracy with autocracy in your title and how we've seen states act as laboratories for popular programs and pro-democracy items, but also for pro-autocracy measures? Sure. I mean, and Louis Brandeis was right when he said that. I mean, states have, and it, go, it goes back to the powers we talked about. It, it's sort of the same observation. States do wield a lot of power over almost every substantive issue we care about, as well as over, you know, democracy itself. So in the right hands, in the right direction, successes at the state level can very easily be modeled in other states as well as nationally. And that's happened many times. You know, the New Deal picked up from a lot of states. Uh, uh, Affordable Care Act came famously from Massachusetts in, in some ways. Uh, the, the whole uh, move to create marriage equality was state-driven, um, on and on and on. But for the same reason that can happen, states also can play the exact opposite role. And that was, and, and so I wish I didn't have to make, but the book title is not, not so sort of uh, a, um, trick to, to get people to read it. It's totally accurate. 
I wish it weren't describing what's happening. I wish it was just a cute name. But the truth is uh, that they are doing uh, what I'm describing. And for the same reason Brandeis felt like these states could do great things, using those same levers in the wrong direction, they can do very dark things, whether it's policies that are unpopular or damaging to the public good or policies in our own democracy. But the second catch is they do work as laboratories. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that, and maybe more intensely than even Brandeis thought, they are learning everything they do right now. And this all stems from the lack of accountability that comes out of gerrymandering. Everything states are doing right now in a negative way, they learn from. If there's a success, they learn from it and other states do it. If there's a failure, they figure out why they failed. They correct for that error, they fix it in that state and other states. On and on and on. I mean, I go through many examples in the book. You know, they tried to kill collective bargaining in Ohio in 2011. Famously, it was called Senate, Senate Bill 5, but it included police and fire unions. Those mm -hmm. police and fire unions became the face of the opposition, absolutely destroyed that, that, that um, bill. In the future, states do not include police and fire unions when they go after collective bargaining. They mm -hmm. saw the Ohio example. Wisconsin succeeded. They did not include police and fire unions. That's one little example of how they are literally always learning. You know, in Ohio, they tried to crush one week of early vote where you could also register that same week three different times. The first two times failed in court. They just kept writing the law again and again and again, trying to fix the mistake they made. And finally, the third time it was upheld. Ohio had a terrible purging process, clearly looked to be violating a federal law. I remember this. Once it was upheld by the Supreme Court, unfortunately, in a 5-4 decision, immediately John Houston of Secretary of State said, congratulations, other states now can use this as a model. So they're not even hiding the fact that they are always learning from successes and failures. And groups like ALEC and other groups and think tanks associated with it are very quick to put in writing, here's everything we learned from what this state did, what that state did, go do it. So they're, they're not only you know moving in an anti-democratic direction, they, they literally admittedly are functioning as laboratories always learning. And but, but again, why are they able to continue to learn even when they fall on their face again and again and again? It's because of those gerrymandered districts. They can do unpopular things many times. They can be found to have violated the Constitution over and over again, but they can pick up the pieces and move move forward because they'll never lose no matter what they do. And that's why, to me, one of the key solutions, I know we'll talk about that later, is until we get accountability back at the state house level, they'll continue to be at laboratories as long as they know they'll never lose by, by being those things. And that's, that's why the system never stops. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. And make sure you're subscribed so you get notified when the second part of this conversation drops next week. If you haven't yet, We'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.